This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There is a primal human fear of being buried alive. In fact, there is an actual recognised phobia of this phenomenon called taphophobia. This fear, whether irrational or not, haunts some people in their waking moments as well as in their dreams. They fixate on the sensation of slowly suffocating as the air dissipates and leaves the space. Eventually, the air empties from their lungs. The terror of clawing at the insides of a wooden box until their fingertips are bloody. And that's before the claustrophobia kicks in and makes their heart pound so hard in their chest that they don't know if it will be this muscle that once sustained life that finally kills them or the carbon dioxide now filling their lungs. Modern medical advancements have made it so that the chances of premature burial or being buried alive for most people are minuscule. However, there are unfortunately cases of deliberate premature burial. Sometimes these cases are simply a method of murder employed by a killer either to absolve themselves of the task of getting up close and personal to their victim at the moment of death, and sometimes the perpetrator wants the victim to suffer intensely to satisfy their own sadism. Over the course of the next two episodes, I'm going to tell you the story of two remarkable yet unrelated cases, beginning with the extraordinary case of Barbara Mackle. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of this season is captivity, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. Barbara Mackle lay in the dark, damp, cramped box. It had been her temporary home for almost 83 hours. There was no room to move or stretch out. There was only her, in the darkness, alone with her own thoughts. She had lost track of time. Was it night or day? Had she been gone a day or a week? She had no way to mark the passage of time and no way to contact the outside world. The food and water supplies left by her abductors were gone. Meagre rations meant only to sustain her body so she didn't die before they were done with her. The flashlight by her side no longer worked. In fact, it had only worked for a very short time at the beginning. Before long, the harsh glow of the bulb shuddered before fading to black. She couldn't quite pinpoint when that had happened anymore. The now and the then merged into one another. She was sleepy and cold. The two ventilation pipes connected to her man-made coffin helped, but her breaths were slow and shallow. 
Suddenly, she heard movement from above the ground. Footsteps, crunching of twigs and foliage. Her first thoughts were that her kidnappers had returned. She wondered if they would be disappointed that she was still alive. Had their plan been to kill her all along and escape with the ransom money? Her daddy would pay. She knew that he would do anything to get her back safely. The money wasn't the issue. It was what they planned to do to her. Would they leave her in the ground to rot? Or had they planned another way to dispose of her? Then the thought struck her. What if it was someone else? What if it was someone who could help her? She began to pound her fists on the wooden lid above her. Bang, bang, bang. She started to call out to make as much noise as possible. Eventually, the footsteps drew closer and she heard activity above the ground. She heard stifled male voices and the sound of soil being moved. She waited in the darkness. There was nothing else she could do. Not knowing what her fate would be once the men reached for her in the ground. Barbara Jane Mackle was born in 1948, the only daughter of Jane and Robert Mackle, a wealthy property developer and one of the owners of the Deltona Corporation. Her father Robert was born in 1912 and along with his two brothers Elliot and Frank Jr. built one of the largest real estate development empires in the United States. The Mackle Company was set up by Frank Mackle Sr. in 1908 in Jacksonville, Florida. When Frank Sr. died in 1937, the company was taken over by his three sons, Elliot, Frank Jr. and Robert. In the 1940s, the company worked on a U.S. Navy project in Key West and built subdivisions around Miami. All three brothers were incredibly wealthy which made them a target for those who wished to acquire some of this prosperity for themselves. On Tuesday the 17th of December 1968, Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine was the number one song in the United States. Elsewhere, mass murderer Richard Speck, who had been convicted of killing eight nurses in a violent rampage in 1966, was granted a stay of execution. The following year, his death sentence would be voided entirely. In Atlanta, Georgia, 20-year-old Barbara Mackle was attending Emory University. She had been struck down with a severe illness earlier in the month. In early December, Barbara had begun to feel unwell, with chills, a fever and muscle pain, leaving her in a weakened condition. She confined herself to her dorm room. Her mother Jane had travelled to Atlanta sometime around the 3rd of December to care for her sick daughter. Jane had persuaded Barbara to stay with her at a local hotel, the Roadway Inn, near the college campus. The plan was to transport Barbara back to their home in Coral Gables, Florida for an early Christmas break. As soon as Barbara was well enough to travel, the pair would begin the 10-hour drive from where they were in Atlanta back to Florida. In December 1968, the Emory University campus was impacted by a severe Hong Kong flu pandemic, with countless staff and students succumbing to the virus. H3N2 was an avian-type flu that was first reported on the 13th of July 1968 in Hong Kong. 
It was a mutated variant of the influenza A virus that had developed from the Asian flu pandemic in 1957 to 1958. It's estimated that the Hong Kong flu pandemic claimed between 1 to 4 million lives globally between 1968 and 69. Although, as with most pandemics, it's difficult to confirm the exact number of casualties. On Monday the 16th of December, Barbara bid farewell to her boyfriend Stuart Hunt Woodward and settled in for the night. She got changed into a red and white nightgown and went to sleep. At approximately 3am, Barbara and Jane were woken by a loud knock on the door. Barbara asked Jane to see who it was and the Mackle matriarch was greeted at the hotel room door by two police officers. They informed her that there had been a road traffic accident involving a white Ford vehicle. This was the same type of vehicle driven by Barbara's boyfriend, Stuart, who had spent time with them earlier the previous evening. As Jane removed the safety chain on the door, the duo pointed the gun at her and pushed their way inside, locking the door behind them. They trained a gun on Barbara and bound Jane's hands and feet before stuffing a chloroform-soaked rag in her mouth and gagging her. The taller man forced Barbara, at gunpoint, to leave the hotel room and get into his running car, a blue Volvo station wagon. The two kidnappers then drove their captive almost 52 kilometres away to a remote pine forest in Gwinnett County. There, Barbara was taken to a pre-dug hole in the ground. She could see a reinforced fiberglass box at the bottom of the hole and was ordered to climb inside. She was told that this was a kidnap for ransom and that they would release her as soon as her father had paid the ransom. Barbara was forced to pose for Polaroid photographs as she lay in her makeshift coffin holding a sign that read, Kidnapped. Barbara said that she forced herself to smile. She said, quote, I just had to smile. I was thinking, if Daddy saw it, I didn't want him to think they had hurt me, end quote. Then they closed the box and secured the heavy lid. She felt the box shake as clods of dirt were thrown on top of her. Eventually, the intermittent thuds ceased and she found herself alone in the dark. Alone with the silence. She could hear the sound of her heartbeat pulsating in her ear. She took shallow breaths while she lay in a shallow grave. She had been buried alive. Just how likely are we to survive being buried alive? Scientists estimate that those unlucky enough to be buried alive may have as little as 10 minutes to live, or as many as 36 hours, depending on how small the person is and how large the space within the coffin. The smaller a person is, then the more space around them can be occupied with oxygen. Eventually, you would slip into unconsciousness, as the carbon dioxide levels rose, replacing the oxygen that had kept you breathing until this point. It also depends on where the coffin is located. University of Chicago professor Alan Leff tells us that most coffins are very well sealed. He says that presuming the coffin you're in is buried in the ground, your chances of escape would be slim. Even if you were to make it out of the coffin, the dirt above you would be so dense and heavy 
that your chest wouldn't be able to expand. He likens it to concrete setting in the course of seconds. This would be the equivalent of being trapped in an avalanche or rock slide. In 1804 or 1805, reports Barry, it's rumoured that former First Lady of Virginia, Anne Hill Carter Lee, was suffering from an unknown illness and was pronounced dead. And the 31-year-old was interred in the Lee family burial vault. It's believed that a sexton or officer of the church heard muffled cries coming from the tomb and raised the alarm. Anne's premature burial took place several years before the birth of her son, Robert E. Lee, who would go on to become General-in-Chief of the short-lived Confederate States of America. In 1844, Edgar Allan Poe published his short horror story, The Premature Burial. This story detailed the protagonist's fear around claustrophobia and taphophobia. This increased public discourse on the topic and various kinds of safety coffins were created to meet this newfound demand. Some of these safety coffins contained a cord attached to a bell located outside of the coffin so that the interred person could signal that they were still alive to those outside. In 1915, Essie Dunbar, a 30-year-old woman from South Carolina, was declared dead after a severe epileptic seizure. Her funeral was delayed until the following day to await the arrival of Essie's sister so that she could say her final goodbyes. When she did arrive, her sister had missed most of the ceremony and watched the final clods of dirt being dropped onto Essie's coffin. Upset at the prospect of never seeing her beloved sister again, Essie's sister demanded that they open the coffin so that she might say goodbye in person. When the lid of the coffin was removed, Essie reportedly sat upright, seemingly fully recovered. She would live for another 47 years, dying at the age of 77. Now, back to the story. Meanwhile, back at the roadway inn, Jane had regained consciousness and freed herself. She got the attention of a hotel employee and they got her to a phone that she could use to alert the police. The first call she made was to the local police. Her second was to her daughter's boyfriend, Stuart. Stuart called Barbara's father, Robert, to inform him of the abduction. Robert instructed Stuart to hang up and call the FBI, who promptly took over the investigation. Robert Mackle was a well-connected multi-millionaire, and both he and his brothers had powerful and influential friends, including President-elect Richard Nixon. Immediately following Barbara's abduction, Robert had flown to Atlanta to be with his wife. It's reported that Nixon, at the behest of Robert Mackle, contacted FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to personally direct the investigation. At 9am the next morning, after Mackle had returned to his Coral Gable home, he received a phone call from his daughter's kidnappers. A male kidnapper gave Robert directions to find a ransom note they had hidden on his property. He was told to go to a specific tree, remove a small rock and dig. Using his bare hands, Robert dug approximately 15 centimetres into the soil to find a sealed glass jar. Inside the jar was a three-page typewritten ransom note. 
The note gave details relating to Barbara's abduction and said that she was being held 6 feet or 1.8 metres underground. They added that it would be impossible for authorities to locate her without the help of her abductors. They demanded a ransom of 500,000 US dollars, which in 2023 would be the equivalent of 4.28 million dollars. The ransom was to be paid within seven days. They assured Robert that if the Mackle family didn't pay the ransom or deviated from the kidnapper's instructions in any way, Barbara would die. They requested bundles of $1,000 comprising only of $20 bills with non-sequential serial numbers. The bills couldn't be marked and couldn't be issued any earlier than 1950. The final ransom would be delivered in a large suitcase. This would be the second largest ransom ever assembled in US history up to that point. The first being a $600,000 ransom paid to the kidnappers of Bobby Greenlease in 1953. Unfortunately for his family, Bobby had been killed by his abductors before the ransom demand had even been issued. Barbara's abductors stated that once they received the ransom, it would take them at least eight hours to verify that all of their instructions had been followed. It was only after this point that they would give details of Barbara's whereabouts. In the ransom letter, they stipulated that all future communication would take place through the placement of classified ads in the personal section of major newspapers in the Miami area. They gave a script that should be included in these ads. The script read as follows. Loved one, please come home. We will pay all expenses and meet you anywhere at any time. Your family. After these ads appeared, the kidnappers said that they would contact Robert with details of the ransom drop point. He was told that he would come alone in his car and that if he contacted authorities or failed to follow these instructions, both he and his daughter would be killed. The FBI advised the family to cooperate with all of the kidnappers' demands. They felt that cooperation would be the best course of action to ensure Barbara's safe return. Before long, an envelope arrived at the Mackle home. It contained a piece of Barbara's jewellery, along with a Polaroid photograph of Barbara lying in the box. She was holding a makeshift sign that read, Kidnapped. This served as proof of life. By Wednesday the 18th of December 1968, the ransom had been assembled, as per the instructions of the kidnappers. A group of 85 bank tellers worked diligently through the night to compile the ransom. Although reportedly only a handful actually knew the true reason that they were there. While the bills were not marked, the tellers had compiled a meticulous list of the serial number of every bill that passed through their fingers that night. Finally, Robert was instructed to drive alone in the early hours of the morning to a bridge approximately four miles from his home. At 4am, Robert arrived at the bridge. As per the instructions, he followed the bridge to the tiny, undeveloped island of Fair Isle that it connected to. It was isolated and there was little chance of being observed by witnesses. He placed the suitcase containing the money on a nearby seawall, as instructed, and drove away. A little after 6am, Robert returned to the ransom drop-off point. 
he needed to know if the exchange had been successful. He was relieved to see that the suitcase was gone, presumably collected by the kidnappers. But this relief was short-lived, as the FBI informed him that something had gone terribly wrong and the ransom drop had failed. Authorities had been tracking the ransom operation from afar and had observed two suspects collecting the suitcase from where Robert had left it on the seawall. The two suspects escaped the island with the ransom money in a motorboat. From here, the pair travelled north along Biscayne Bay before crashing to shore in a loud and violent collision. The noise of the motorboat hitting the shore was so loud that it woke up local residents. Police were alerted to a possible incident and sent a squad car to investigate. Local police engaged the suspects as they had no idea that a ransom drop had been scheduled to take place. There hadn't been a coordinated effort between the FBI and local law enforcement. And therefore, the entire operation was compromised. Police officers responded to the report disturbance and observed two suspicious individuals who, according to reports from the time, didn't appear to live in the area. There's no information as to how these officers surmised that the duo were not locals. I've never been to Florida and know even less about specific neighbourhoods. But it's probable that the neighbourhood the kidnappers happened to crash their motorboat into was wealthy. In which case, they likely stood out from those around them. There's probably also an element of profiling here. Upon seeing the police, the suspects fled on foot, dispersing in different directions. There is a brief shootout between suspects and the police, although it's unclear as to who fired the first shots. No one was injured and both suspects escaped. In an unwelcome development for the kidnappers, to make their escape, they were forced to abandon the suitcase containing the ransom money that they had schemed so hard to get. When the FBI updated Robert of this development, he openly cried, convinced that the abductors would certainly kill Barbara in retaliation, just as they had promised. Robert was growing increasingly desperate. He begged the FBI to allow him to communicate with his daughter's abductors once again. They agreed. He placed another classified ad in the personal ad section of all of the major Miami newspapers, as he had done just days earlier. In this new message, Robert assured the abductors that he played no part in the situation with the local police that had tried to apprehend them. He assured them that he would do anything to ensure the safe return of his daughter. This tactic worked, likely because the abductors, when faced with the prospect of abandoning the ransom money or setting new terms, chose the latter. Soon, the abductors had contacted Robert with a new drop point for the ransom. This time, the money was to be left at the entrance to a property off a dirt road near the Tamiami Trail. At 1am on Friday the 20th of December, 
Robert made the ransom drop off for the second time and waited for news of Barbara's fate. Almost 12 hours later, a little before 1pm, a switchboard operator at the Atlanta office of the FBI received a call from the kidnappers. The caller said that they would give details of Barbara Mackle's whereabouts only once. The operator took diligent notes, not quite realising the significance of the information being conveyed at the time. The caller had indicated that Barbara was buried near an intersection in the city of Norcross, Georgia. The details were vague, but it gave investigators an indication of where to begin the search. That same day, the FBI made their way to Gwinnett County in Georgia and set up their base in Lawrenceville, close to where the caller had directed them to. Here, a task force of more than 100 agents began the meticulous ground search. Not quite knowing what they were looking for or if the information they had been given was even correct. At approximately 4.15pm, as two FBI agents searched a quadrant of pine forest on the side of a hill, they heard faint knocking sounds coming from the woods surrounding them. The rhythm was unnatural and was not made by an animal. They spun around, straining to hear where the sound was coming from, but they couldn't quite locate the origins. One of the agents noticed an area of red clay that looked as though it had been recently disturbed. Upon closer inspection, they saw something protruding from the ground. They knew that they were in the right spot, but they didn't know if they had arrived too late to save Barbara. While all of this was going on, Barbara remained in her subterranean box. She hadn't had contact with anyone since her abductors had left her in the ground three days earlier. Later, Barbara would describe the experience of being buried alive as follows. She said that she screamed and screamed in an attempt to stop what was happening, but to no avail. She said that the, quote, sound of the dirt got farther and farther away. Finally, I couldn't hear anything above. I screamed for a long time after that, end quote. The two FBI agents grabbed whatever was around them. They started digging with their hands and crude makeshift tools to remove the earth from around the tubing. They called out to other agents in the vicinity that they had found something. It took them 15 minutes to remove 50 to 60 centimeters of soil to reach the box that Barbara was trapped in. They used a tire iron to pry open the heavy lid. When they found her, she was alive but suffering from severe dehydration. She had lost 10 pounds or 4.5 kilos in weight and was too weak to walk unassisted. She was cold and wet and still wearing the red and white nightgown she had been wearing when she was abducted from her room in the roadway inn. Rainwater had seeped into the fiberglass box she was lying in and had pooled around her. She had been in that box for a total of 83 hours. Barbara immediately asked how her parents were. Reports from the Times suggest that she was incredibly composed throughout her entire ordeal. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover called the Mackle family to personally deliver the news that their missing daughter had been recovered. 
Barbara participated in several press interviews, but her treatment by the media was a stark difference to how abduction victim Stephen Stainer would be treated just 12 years later. To hear more about this, you can listen to the first episode of the season that covers Stephen's case. In the Shadow of Yosemite, Part 1, Stephen Stainer. Barbara maintained an upbeat attitude despite her traumatic experience. First responders on the scene stated that she was very calm even while being removed from the ground. Later, unsubstantiated claims emerged that the water she'd been given by her abductors had been laced with sedatives. Just because she didn't appear to be physically harmed doesn't mean that she didn't experience emotional harm. The true impact of her ordeal could take months or years to fully process. Barbara credited this positive attitude to her strong religious beliefs, as well as her unwavering belief that her parents would do whatever it took to have her safely returned to them. On Christmas Eve 1968, just one week after her ordeal began, President-elect Richard Nixon visited the Mackles' home to wish them a happy Christmas. Once Barbara was safely reunited with her family, authorities focused their attention on her kidnappers. The failed drop-off actually provided authorities with some of the best leads about the suspects. They found an abandoned blue Volvo station wagon and traced it to a man called George Deacon, a research assistant at the University of Miami. They also found fingerprints, photographs of Deacon with an unidentified woman, and Polaroids of Barbara Mackle lying in the fiberglass coffin. When authorities checked with the Institute of Marine Sciences at the University of Miami, they discovered that they were missing a motorboat from their boat shop. This had been stolen the night before the first ransom drop. Authorities were able to verify the serial numbers and registration and found that the missing boat and the one that had been crashed and abandoned by the kidnappers was one and the same. Deacon was confirmed to have taken annual leave on the 16th of December, the day before the abduction. The woman in the photographs was identified as 26-year-old graduate student Ruth Eisman Shire. She was born in Honduras of Austrian descent and was studying at the University of Miami on a marine biology scholarship. The investigation suggested that Eisman Shire and Deacon had begun a relationship the previous September. This had begun while both were on a scientific cruise to Bermuda. Eisman Shire's demeanour had reportedly changed and her grades had dropped. It was soon discovered that George Deacon did not exist and was an assumed name. The FBI were able to identify the suspect known as George Deacon as 23-year-old Gary Stephen Grist. Grist was born in 1945 in Aberdeen, Washington. He grew up between Pelican, Alaska and Utah. He is described as having a high level of intelligence but fell into a life of petty crime. His first recorded crime, or the first time he was caught, was in 1959, when he was 14. He was arrested after a string of robberies. It would be the first of a litany of charges he would face in his lifetime. 
each one more outrageous than the other. In November 1966, while serving a sentence for car theft, Christ, along with another prisoner, escaped from Dual Vocational Institute, a California state prison. The other prisoner was killed during the prison break, and Christ went on the run. Jane Mackle had described two assailants. One was a man, and one was a teenager or younger-looking boy. Authorities were convinced that there was a third abductor yet to be identified. After some investigation, this theory was abandoned, and it was hypothesised that the teenager was, in fact, Eismanshire in drag. On the same day that Barbara was rescued, authorities also made a significant breakthrough in apprehending her abductor. They received a tip from the owner of a marine supply business in West Palm Beach that a suspicious customer had purchased a 16-foot or 4.9-metre boat in cash. What made the man suspicious of this customer was the manner in which he approached the sale. The customer asked for a boat with very detailed specifications, such as an 85-horsepower motor. He then took the boat on a test run and paid for the purchase in $20 bills. He handed the cash over and completed the sale without stepping off the boat. As soon as the transaction was complete, he sailed away in his new purchase, prompting the witness to contact the FBI. Later, authorities received reports of a suspicious man fitting Chris's description passing through the Okeechobee waterway. They plotted his projected route to Fort Myers and then likely onto the Gulf of Mexico. They were closing in on their suspect. They would eventually apprehend him in the early hours of the morning on the 22nd of December. He had been trying to evade authorities by hiding in the swamps around Hog Island in murky water populated by alligators and poisonous snakes. They found a briefcase on his person containing 18,000 US dollars and a further $480,000 in a suitcase concealed in the hull of a rotting boat that had been abandoned on the island. Ruth Eismanshire was harder to find. She and Christ had been separated in the days after the ransom had been collected. Unsurprisingly, Christ had taken the entire ransom haul for himself and had absconded, leaving Eismanshire to fend for herself. She spent most of the next three months penniless and destitute. Authorities searched for the fugitive and Eismanshire was the very first woman to be placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. In March 1969, she was apprehended in Norman, Oklahoma. Taking inspiration from her former beau, she had been posing as an 18-year-old Donna Sue Willis and staying at a rooming house for college students. She had applied for a position as a nurse's aide at a psychiatric institution. As part of the application process, she agreed to be fingerprinted, not realising that these would be made available to the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation and the FBI. They quickly traced the fingerprints to those found on Christ's abandoned Volvo. Eisman Shire was openly remorseful and pled guilty straight away. This earned her the sympathy of the public, who felt that she had been misled by the more dominant Christ. 
she was sentenced to seven years in prison and served a little less than three before being deported back to Honduras. She later married and disappeared into relative obscurity. In contrast, Christ was described as arrogant and unrepentant. He pleaded not guilty to all charges and went to trial. Portrayed as a highly intelligent man with a preoccupation for money and perceived power, Christ hated that he wasn't financially successful. It emerged that Christ had planned the abduction for a very long time. He had sought out a wealthy target who would have the mental fortitude to withstand the experience of being buried alive. Which is crazy to think about. Just the level of planning and premeditation here. Once he chose Barbara Mackle, he stalked her for months, documenting her movements and waiting to make his move. In May 1969, Christ was sentenced to life imprisonment for his kidnap for ransom scheme. He served only 10 years before being released on parole. He later obtained a medical license from a Caribbean medical school and was approved to practice in Indiana in 2001. By 2003, his medical license had been revoked, as he had failed to report a disciplinary action against him. In 2006, he was arrested again off the coast of Alabama in a chartered boat. He was carrying 31 pounds or 14 kilos of cocaine, along with several people who had paid to be illegally smuggled into the United States. He only served four years for these crimes. He was once again sent back to prison in 2012 when he left the country without permission, thus violating the terms of his release. His current whereabouts are unknown. He could literally be anywhere. Barbara Mackle went on to live a long and fulfilled life. She married her college boyfriend, Stuart, and they went on to have two children together. The couple remained married until Stuart's death in 2013. In 1972, Barbara, along with the Miami Herald reporter Jean Miller, released a book detailing her experiences during her kidnapping. The book was titled 83 Hours Till Dawn. Several film and television projects were adapted from this book and her experience inspired countless other stories. The 2011 film A Lonely Place to Die took inspiration from Barbara's experience and used this as a central plot point in the script. In the film, mountaineers hiking in the Scottish Highlands come across a young abducted girl buried alive in a ventilated chamber on the side of a mountain. The protagonists have to make a decision on what to do next while the abductors pursue them through dangerous and isolated terrain. Once the book was released in 1972, Barbara declined to speak publicly about her ordeal. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that this would be the first of two similar but unrelated cases. Join me next time to hear the story of Stephanie Slater, a Birmingham-based estate agent who was abducted and held for ransom in a coffin by a deranged man who had killed before. He would go on to taunt police with his crimes and would certainly kill again if given the opportunity. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick.
All episodes can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. Please share this episode with anyone you think might enjoy it. It really does help to let people know about the podcast. <laughs>